Hello and welcome to the Success Secret Podcast with Rosso Santalev. I am excited to introduce you to a series of conversations with some of the most successful and inspiring individuals from various industries. My aim is to dive into the stories behind their success and explore the knowledge, strategies, habits, mindsets, and wisdom that have propelled their success. Each episode of the Success Secret Podcast will feature a different guest who will share their unique journey, the challenges they faced, and the lessons they have learned along the way. I will also be covering topics from entrepreneurship and innovation to leadership and personal development. Whether you are an inspiring entrepreneur, a seasoned business professional, or just someone looking to improve your life, the Success Secret Podcast is for you. My goal is to bring you valuable insights and inspiration that will help you achieve your own success in business and life. So get ready to learn and be inspired. The Success Secret Podcast starts now. In this episode, I have with me Evan Zhang. He is the CEO of Pennyworks, an investment platform whose goal is to bring the benefits of decentralized finances to a broader public. Prior to Pennyworks, Evan held various senior roles in trading and portfolio management within large banks and proper trading firms. He's also the co-founded blockchain system LLC, a builder of a megawatt-scale crypto mining facility. Evan, welcome to the Success Secret Podcast. Thanks, Hussein, for having me. So you have lots of experience in finance, cryptocurrencies, blockchains. This is a lot of things that we could talk about. But I want our focus to be on how people, individual people, can take control of their finances. So first of all, I want us to let us know how any individual in general, what are the things that they should look at to start controlling their finances? So a lot of the stuff is pretty straightforward. For example, if you want to start, the first thing would be bank accounts. How many bank accounts do you have? Do you have one bank account? Do you have two bank accounts? Most people don't think about that because if you're in a developed economy or even in just most economies, you have one bank account that works is good enough. But the problem is that certain times, you know, maybe you're in a jam or something and you need to do something. And if it's an unusual transaction, the bank might decline. So if you only have one bank account, all of a sudden you're stuck. You're not able to process your transactions. You're not able to do what you need to do. So being more in control of your finances really just means to be more operationally effective in terms of managing. Do you have a backup bank account, right? Do you have funds in the different bank accounts? Do you have savings accounts, checking accounts? Do you have a brokerage account? And so that's one of the standard financial tools that you can have. But the even cooler thing is once you overlay blockchain on top of it, you can be your own custodian, which means that you can actually control your own assets. And that gives you a much le- a higher level of control because now it's not a policy of this bank to say, oh, all of a sudden you can only withdraw $100 per day for some reason, right? There's no such limitation when you control your assets. And that's the benefit that blockchain can bring everyday folks. Personal finances in general, uh, there is a lot of talk about, for example, uh, debt. So this time now, is it good for people to take on debt for anything that 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 might occur to, to their minds? Like, for example, some people take debt to buy cars, some people take debt to buy new home, houses, or sometimes to, uh, let's say, finance their business. So do you think it's a good idea or a good strategy? I think it's highly dependent on what you do with the money, right? So, for example, if it's a consumption thing, like you're going to buy a bigger TV, you're going to buy a car. I would say absolutely not. Almost never is it worth it to buy a car on debt. 
Now, there's some other situations where that might not apply. For example, if you need a car to run your business and then renting a car is more expensive uh, than buying it or something like that, maybe there's an argument for that. But in terms of investment, it also depends highly on where you are, right? A lot of countries have tax incentives that specifically benefit property holders, right? Especially in the United States, you know, you have tax deductions for your interest expenses. You have uh, tax-free capital gains for a certain amount of appreciation. You can even trade in your property from another property without paying any taxes at all. And the best thing is you can also take on debt by borrowing 75% of the value, which means that since everybody wants to leverage these benefits, they're taking on more debt than they should, right? So, oh, regularly you can only afford one house, but because of all these policies, I can afford four houses. And what ends up happening is a lot of these people then just max that out, right? Try to build a lot of wealth and it works fine until it doesn't, maybe because house prices go up for 20 years and they drop for two or three. But if you're in that two or three years where you're maxed out, then you lose everything, right? So it's a giant big roll of a die. But the other thing is raising rates, which is what's happening in major developing economies, really just says you got to be more picky about the things that you invest in. That's all it is, right? Are you able to generate more than 5% returns on your investment? And if you can't do that, then you should probably should not invest in it. That's really what this is saying when the interest is telling you. Because if you can't do that, you could just buy treasuries or government bonds or things like that. And you save a lot of hassle. You don't do anything. You're lazy and you earn the same amount of money. Why wouldn't you want to do that? What are the, let's say, some kind of uh, best tips that you can give for people to invest in certain things? Like also sometimes, like we mentioned, taking or borrowing money to buy a house, another house, and you can probably like rent it out or renovate it and sell it. Is this kind of investment also a good one because you are taking money to basically, let's say, resell the house again and make some money? But also that, like you mentioned, it can also depends on the rates that the government have, also the rates uh, that that can be on certain loans that you are taking on and also on the on the uh, the deposit that uh, each one of us have in general so how do you look at that yeah so that's highly depending on the country like i would just use the united states because that's the only country i'm super familiar with um in the united states as a regular individual most times you're able to borrow up to 80% of the value which means that if you want to buy $100 of house you can put $20 down which is great if it's your primary residence, which means that you live in it, you get some tax benefits like the interest deductions and the other stuff. Um, but if you're renting it out, obviously it becomes a capital asset. Now you have the depreciation. Depreciation helps you because that means that if you earn like a dollar a year on it, but because the property is now used up for a year, the value theoretically should go down a little bit. So that will actually offset your income from rents. And so a lot of people ends up being that they're able to rent it out. And on paper, it doesn't show them as having earned any money because all of their rental income is offset by depreciation and amortization. So that's a great way for people to essentially build up wealth tax-free. And then what ends up happening is that the cost basis, which is just basically um, the amount that the government sees you paid for the house goes down, right? By the amount that you depreciate it. So maybe over time, if you depreciate it for years maybe it goes on to fifty dollars now if you sell it again and it's still worth a hundred dollars theoretically you should be paying that extra uh, capital gains on that fifty dollars you just earned right and so theoretically you should come back and it gets back to the tax authorities 
but in the United States, there's another incentive for that, where if you want to actually trade up for a bigger house, you don't have to uh, pay taxes. It's just kind of like a swap, right? So there might be different policies in different countries that kind of support that because uh, one, it doesn't have to be economic, right? People say, hey, look, we want to support stability. We want to support the sense of ownership. So we want to help people buy houses. It's probably fine for the government to decide to do that. But what ends up doing is because it has these incentives, it pushes the price up to a level that's unnaturally high, right? If you're in a country where the population is not growing, right? Why do you expect that the housing price should keep growing at 10% a year, right? Maybe after 10 years, there's going to be 10% less people. Why would you need 10% more house, <laughs> right? So those are the things where in the short term, you see people buying, you see people making money, you see, oh, look, I'm renting out, I'm earning whatever, how many dollars, it sounds really sexy. But in reality, that happens is you're just taking on more and more risk, right? Mm -hmm. And because the prices are higher and higher, it means that there's less room for error, right? So that's kind of the main limitation. So I highly recommend, if you think about it, if you do, you're going to do these investments, the best thing to think about, besides the fact that the price might go down, is what is your interest rate commitment, right? If you think, oh, I'm going to buy it and flip it and be able to sell it within a year, that's a lot of things that have to go right, right? You have to make sure that all the contracts, that whatever paperwork you need to do, actually do the fixing of the house and so on and so forth, and then finding the person that's going to then buy it. All these things have to be green light until you actually make the money, right? So when you're planning something, you really want to give you a lot of room of errors. So, oh, maybe it's not going to happen within a year. It's going to be two years. Well, if it's going to be two years, are you going to be able to hold the house? Are you going to be able to carry the interest? Are you going to be able to pay it? What if nobody comes and shows up and nobody rents it out, right? So when you think about these things to make it a sustainable investment, all it just means is it adds a lot more buffers. And instead of trying to do two or three houses per year, maybe it will be able only to do one. Right. Uh, and then instead of borrowing short term that has like, you know, a lot of interest rates are fixed at um, floating, like let's say a three month life or three month, um, uh, you know, European like short term rates, um, maybe borrow long term. Right. So you'd be like, hey, look, I'm going to lock these rates in for five years. Right. They might not be the cheapest, but that means that at the very least, if your plan or project is going to happen within five years, you'll know what the costs are going to be. And you can then anticipate that and make sure that you're able to meet those obligations. Right. So it's not so much about how much money you have to make. It's about what are the potential risks. And the best way to make money or quality money is that you have managed the risk very well while making a decent return. Right. Because yeah. otherwise, you could just go to the casino. Right. You don't need to manage it. You just put it all on black and maybe you make money. Right. So speaking of risk, this is this is the big this is the big issue. Like. In life, in general, there is a lot of things people or entrepreneurs or business owners are afraid of risk. They are afraid to lose their money, especially. I think Warren Buffett said the first rule is not to lose money. <laughs> but <laughs> the second rule is to remember the first rule. But <laughs> so so uh, these kind of risks, what are the elements or how can people know that this could be risky? Like, for example, you mentioned when you when we talk about houses we talk about depreciation right yeah. but we, when we talk for example lands there is no depreciation on lands so do you think right. for example buying a land is a good investment for example and how do we know certain investments or certain assets or whatever it is that we are buying that this thing that will benefits will benefit us in the future and we will have a minimal risk in it so i, I want to be clear 
you cannot ever be afraid of losing money because if you're not taking risk, why are people paying you, right? So maybe you're like a worker or something. Fine, they pay you for your time, right? And that's why you earn money. But in order for money to make money, the fundamental proposition is that you need to take risk, right? And for example, just for the regular buying a house, fixing it up and selling it, you're taking the risk that the price of the house that you bought is too high, right? What if it comes down and you lose money? You're taking the risk that you're not able to find a buyer after nine months. You're taking the risk that the construction doesn't go well, right? You're taking the risk that interest rates will stay stable while you're borrowing and then funding these capital improvements, right? Those are all the risks that you're taking. And because you align all those things up together, at the end, you get a payoff, right? So it's not about not losing money. It's about saying, hey, look, these are the risks I'm taking, and this is the potential reward. Is it proportional to the potential reward that I'm getting? Sometimes it's very high, right? And so that means, sure, I might take a risk. I might lose half of my money, right? But if I win, I win like 10 times. I'll still do it. You see what I'm trying to say? So if you're thinking about it and then you say, oh, instead of house, we're going to do land. It's a different story. It's a different business. There's different characteristics, right? I'm not so familiar across the land business, but the idea is, hey, look, there's nothing on it, right? The reason you can buy a giant piece of land is probably because there's also nothing around, not around the land, but near the land. So it's just in the middle of nowhere. So for those things, you're not going to be able to sell it in six months. You're not going to be able to sell it in a, week, a year. The idea is a fine. If you buy this land, okay, you don't have to cap. There's no depreciation. You're not losing anything, but you have to hold it. Maybe for exactly. five years, maybe mm. for 10 years. You need mm. to be committed that no matter what happens in five or 10 years, you're not going to be like, oh, I really need the money that I would have had had I not bought this piece of land because now I need to pay for something. You need to take on that illiquidity risk, right? And so in terms of finances, you learn about all these different dimensions of risk and say, oh, look, this is how much risk I'm taking. Am I getting an appropriate return on it, right? So it's okay, fine. I'm not going to be able to sell it in 10 years, but I'm going to make five times my original investment, right? So, you have so, to make sure that you know what you're getting to. Exactly. So uh, how important do you think it is with the blockchain coming in with the crypto, these kind of things, how important is it do you think decentralized finances is because like when people want to borrow money, like we mentioned earlier, they usually go to the banks. So now with decentralized systems, do you think that there will be a better idea or is there is now a better idea for people to borrow money with less, let's say, rates with decentralized systems from each other, I think? Because eventually banks, when they give money, they basically give money This is that is not actually theirs. This is other people's money that they deposited to get a return on it, right? So how does that work with the decentralized systems? Well, ideally, it should be pretty much the same, right? Now, the bank has a branch, right? They have offices, they have people, they have all these other overheads, so they need to make some money on it. So whatever money that you're borrowing from them, let's say they'll charge you X, then they're only paying their depositors X minus some percentage, right? The, that percentage is their margin that they need to earn. So the appeal of decentralized finance is essentially, one, it reduces the overhead. Right, because you don't actually need to have an entire banking system. Decentralized finance, these smart contracts can be the banks themselves. They can be the marketplaces, right? Which is exactly where Pennyworks operates, and we are our lender on decentralized financial protocols, right? 
So that's a benefit because if you don't have these costs, it just goes back to the users, right? So either some of it goes to lender, some of it goes to borrower, or maybe half and half, right? So that's number one. The second of all, uh, even though people perceive crypto as risky, the idea of blockchain is that you're not adding that extra third party to the transaction, right? So when I'm buying something from you, there's not like a third bank that have their own procedures, documents, requirements, other things that they have to say yes or no or prove to, right? It makes the process simpler. There's less people at the table, right? In the United States, especially in New York City, if you actually buy a house, like by the day you're going to finalize the contract, there's like almost 10 people in the room, right? They're signing documents, sending out checks. Like I give you five checks, you give me three checks. And sometimes it rounds off and it's off by one penny. If it's off by one penny, the deal does not go through because it doesn't check out the accounting system. And then that is like a whole day wasted. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you think that reduces risk or increases risk? Any one of those people could make a mistake, right? Or maybe the, by the time they finally sign the thing and then they leave, they get hit by car. What happens? Do you have your house or do you not have your house? Which document is missing? Who knows, right? So decentralization removes middlemen from a lot of these traditional transactions, which simplifies the transaction and reduces risk on that way. But it also imposes new risks, right? The new risk that's imposed is the fact that now you're responsible for your own asset, right? Before, the bank was holding it. Okay, maybe they don't have a physical safe anymore, but they have bank systems, they're professionals are managing it, that's their business. Now, if you're in a decentralized world, you are responsible for managing it, right? So maybe some people are very savvy and they're better than the average person at the bank, but a lot of people are not. Or maybe they could be, but they're not interested in doing that, right? So they still would like somebody to do that for them. So that introduces a new dimension. Mm. So now uh, this new dimension, decentralized systems, uh, I said I didn't want to talk about crypto, but <laughs> it might come a little bit. Uh, so I don't know if you know this, but now this is we are recording now in December and a lot of people have invested in crypto. But this because to me, there is like when we talk about certain finances, also we talked about land and houses and also there is some gold. gold. These kind of things are tangible. People can touch but when, when we talk about crypto, there's nothing to touch. It's not related to uh, physical material. It's only basically supply and demand. What people might think it will go up, they will put money in it, or they think it will go down, they might withdraw their money. So so don't you think this kind of thing that is between people only will also have some kind of a bad effects in general? Let me ask a question. Google, right, empowers the internet. Do you think the value of Google comes from like all the servers that they own? How many percentage of the value comes from the physical hardware of any actual thing that they have, like buildings? Uh, no, I think Google is has the power over for for the for what they do or they serve for people. Exactly, exactly. Which is, which is looking for more information uh, easily, quickly. Yeah, they provide a service, right? Google provides a service. You need to search for something. They'll tell you the answer very quickly, right? Blockchain does the same thing. They provide a service. What they do is they have a decentralized ledger where you're able to record transactions so that it doesn't have any mistakes. It's incorruptible, right? It means that nobody can randomly come in and change the transaction. So those things are very, very valuable services. So if you think about a service and people are using it and they're paying transaction fees to use it, that's what a business is, right? 
a business doesn't have physical necessarily tangible. If you have like an e-commerce site, you have nothing, right? You have a website, you have some nice pages. There's no physical thing. The most valuable things in the stock market right now are intellectual property rights. Those things you cannot touch either, right? I own the rights to song. Every time you hear this song, I make five cents. Like that's amazing, right? And so the same thing is like the fact that there's no physicality is completely irrelevant. And the fact that it becomes more and more irrelevant because if you look at like the largest market cap S&P 500, the percentage of the value attributable to actual physical goods has gone down exponentially. Mm. So then what I'm so focused on, what are the services? What is the thing they're providing uh, the value on? Well, it's essentially the same service as the modern financial banking system is providing. Except right now, the modern financial banking system is like 10 to 15% of GDP to provide those services because there's tons of people, there's tons of branches, there's tons of manual labor. Uh, but, you know, same thing with farming, maybe like over 150 years ago, it used to be that 95% of people were farmers. And now in the United States, less than two people, uh, 2% of people are farmers, right? The irony is that the biggest economic report that comes out every month called the non-farm payrolls in the United States, why is it called non-farm payrolls? Such a weird name. Because non-farm was a small subsection of the report. It used to be mostly the farm payrolls, right? Now it's backwards. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Li- life evolved quickly now, like, Everything is now basically is done online, basically. So mostly now, I think in farms, mostly, for example, a lot of things is about machines. So there is a lot of things that machine do for farmers, I think. So the, the time when when a land needed, like, for example, one person or two people to work to get the crop in a month or two now, it, one machine can do it one man in like maybe two days. So exactly. Things, yeah. Imagine the same thing happening, but in finance, right? Mm. So you can have potentially 10% or 15% of GDP or the economy being replaced by much more efficient, lower overhead, smart contracts, right? Not everything, right? Because you still have salespeople, you have people to call, you have relationships and things and so forth. But there's also a lot of plumbing that's just terrible. Like in the United States, you can't really send money in real time, right? There's no such thing. I mean, they're making it now. Uh, but most of the time, you know, banks will send it, you have to ACH, you wait a few days, or you pay by credit card, and the credit card is just the financing, right? You're really, they're just lending you the money the moment you swipe the card, and then you're promising paying back within a month, right? Whereas blockchain, most blockchains, regardless of how big or popular they are, allow real-time settlement, real-time payments anywhere in the world for almost free. It's already a world-class service available to anybody as opposed to only really wealthy people uh, that have access to wires and SWIFT. <laughs> well, banks have access to SWIFT. So. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. So uh, I want to go back to your own story. Uh, what what things that are made you passionate, especially it's, it's clear that you are passionate about finances. What person or thing that drove you to be your own man, let's say, your own, your entrepreneur? I think it's, it's really just the fact that I saw technology evolving and lowering the barriers to entry, right? So before, if you want to start any meaningful business, if you want to be a publisher, right? If you wanted to uh, do software, if you had to do anything, you need to rely on a huge team of people or a large investment to get started. And because of the tools that are being made in the last decade or so, 
you can become uh, like a one-man team that does an entire business, right? You can be in the entire marketing department, sales department. You can be the operations. You can run a website. All that stuff, it used to be 20 people. Now you can do it in 20 minutes, right? Mm -hmm. For free, maybe like in the first 30-day trial, whatever, right? So that has allowed uh, a change in the economy where uh, maybe a few hundred years ago, everyone was an artisan, right? Everyone was very skilled and unique in their skill set. And it was hard to replicate. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, there's industrial revolution where everyone became a cog, a machine, right? Because you wanted them to do the exact same thing at the exact same pace all the time, 24-7, right? And nobody could really, like, oh, I'm going to go, if I don't like this policy, I'm going to go start my own factory. That's very difficult, right? Huge, huge capital costs, huge barriers to entry. And now it's the trend that's reversing, right? If you want to do anything from scratch, as an entrepreneur now, it's the best time to be an entrepreneur that it's ever been, right? The startup cost of anything is so easy. You can reach millions of people in an instant for like pennies on the dollar, right? That's just never been possible before. So essentially reduce the barriers to entry so meaningfully that there is a lot of opportunities just if you want to try it out, as mm -hmm. long as you have the daring to do it. Exactly. Like uh, nothing happens unless we take risks. So <laughs> that nothing, everything will stay the same. If any woman, man, in their business or in whatever they do, don't take risks. So like we mentioned earlier, even in finance, like in life, also in finance, you have to look at the uh, the return uh, on your investments because uh, when you look at that it could be higher maybe some potential risks but also the potential return could be a lot higher so that would be worth to look after it so what are some of the uh, let's say some of the best tools resources or books that you personally would recommend to people in general so uh, there's a lot of books that are um very technical that I read, right? Just from my background, mostly in finance. There are a lot of more books uh, about um, uh, personal psychology that I find very interesting. So mm -hmm. there's a whole branch in behavior econ economics started by Kahneman and Tversky, which are Nobel Prize winners. And they kind of initiated this thing called prospect theory, which is the, it's a made up word that they created, but basically this says, look, people use tons of shortcuts to evaluate ideas, right? Or to understand or reason or make decisions. And these shortcuts have systematic biases that make them consistently wrong in a specific set of ways, right? And so either you can identify those things in your own thinking or identify in, in other situations and you can benefit from making better quality decisions. So there's tons of books that, that, can, that, that are um, published about this now. So I would just, instead of focusing on a specific book, I would focus about the author. So um, uh, Kahneman, he has a Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow uh, book. There's uh, Richard Thaler, which recently won the Nobel Prize as well in economics. He has a lot of books that introduces some of these experiments that teaches people how to think. There's also another one that's um, uh, A Power of a Habit. Uh, that one is very important because it says you don't have to be world-changing. You don't have to be amazing. You, the guy that's running like the fastest sprinter in the world, what they're doing different is that they're just doing a little bit better every day, but they're doing it every single day, day in, day out, week out, week in, week out, for years at a time. And before you know it, the small, tiny habit that's not particularly amazing, but accumulated over decades, makes you become a world leader at whatever activity you do. 
And so that's kind of the a very uplifting because the idea is it's not about how amazing you are. It's about how persistent you are. If you do anything and you're very persistent at it, at the end of 20 or 30 years, you will get to an amazing place. That's amazing advice. Consistency is the much the most important thing because without it, you won't go to the next level, let's say. That's amazing. Yep. Yeah. So, Evan, can you add something to our finance talk? Is there something that we missed that could be important to some people that they want to learn about how, let's say, manage their finances better in, in the short term, maybe? So for, for personal finances, it depends on which country you're in, what laws you have. Uh, but th- you want to keep the general idea, right? Which is the fact that y- the trade-off is always not about potential reward. It's potential rewards weighted with the potential risks, right? And it's a core tenet of finance and that they have even a metric called the sharp ratio, which is basically your potential return divided by some measure of the risks, right? And the higher this ratio just means, hey, look, I can make a lot more for every unit of risk that I'm taking, right? And when you're doing that, it just tells you that you're making quality decisions. So if you can think of your life and any decisions you make in that framework, then you can see how you can choose between things that have much higher sharp ratio, higher likelihood of success without imposing additional risks to yourself. And that's how you're able to grow not only consistently, but also quick and faster than you otherwise would if you're taking unnecessary risks that you do not need to. So, Evan, thank you for being here today with me in this episode of Success Secret Podcast. Really enjoyed speaking with you and the magnificent points. We talked basically <laughs> about tons of things here. So thank you for being today with me on this episode. Appreciate it. Likewise, Hussein. Thank you for listening to this episode of Success Grid. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you found value in the show, rate and leave a review on iTunes. For more resources, visit successgrid.net. Until next time.